0: Welcome to the study of God's Word with Pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Well, our study is in 2 Kings 3 tonight, uh, a Bible study that I've entitled Dig the Ditches. Dig the ditches. Now, our study through the book of Kings has been a pretty sad study as we watch the leadership of the nation of Israel make great errors and much failure and sin. I mean, we saw it most with Ahab and Jezebel. Now, it didn't start out that way. Those of you that were with us in our beginning study in 1 Kings, remember 1 Kings opened up with Solomon taking the throne. And there was a united, unified kingdom under God, the way that God desired in order to follow him. However, even in its best condition, the rulership of the nation by kings was at best God's second best. Because God's desire in rulership over us is something known as theocracy, to be ruled over by God. But you'll recall that the people wanted to be like the other nations. They they wanted to have the kind of prestige the other nations had. They demanded a king. They, They wanted everything that came with a kingdom, like armies, like power, like money, like prestige. They rejected the leadership of Samuel, as we'll see in a moment. Even though God warned them ahead of time, you don't want a king. And isn't that true in times in our lives where God will warn you ahead of time? You don't want this, but you go after it anyway. You don't want this. This is not going to be good for you. And yet we've got this perspective. No, I've got it all figured out, and it's going to be really good. And we figure, you know, no, you don't want this. Well, well notice what Samuel says in verse ten of chapter eight in First Samuel. As not only did they reject Samuel, but they rejected the will of God for their lives. They rejected the warning of God. And so he says, he says, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them in his own chariots to be his horsemen. Some will run before his chariots. <clears throat> He'll appoint captains over his thousands, captains over his 50s We'll set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest. Some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his for his chariots, verse thirteen, he'll take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, bakers. He'll take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and his servants. And he'll take your men servants and your maid servants and your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He'll take a tenth of your sheep and you'll be your, you will be his servants. In verse 18, you'll cry out in that day because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the, of the people and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. Now we're many years here in 2 Kings chapter 3. We're many years past Solomon. And the condition of the people has not improved. After Solomon died, the kingdom divided between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And it remains divided all the way through its history. In 2 Kings chapter 3, we find ourselves with, introduced again or reminded of Jehoram if you want to pick up with me in verse 1. Notice it says, Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And here's the summary of his kingdom. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother for he did put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father has made. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin, and he did not depart from them. Even though his name means Yahweh is exalted or God is exalted, the summary of his leadership is both he did evil and and the comparison is this, oh, he did evil, oh, not as bad as his dad, but he's evil nonetheless. And that's often a mistake that we make, isn't it? We look at our behavior, as bad as it is, and then somebody might say, hey, you know what, bro, you're like, that's evil. And then what's your response? Well, you know, I'm not as bad as, and then you name the worst possible person you can think of. Like anyone compared to that person isn't as bad as that person. But it doesn't mean your evil is anything less. He did make a good decision, but the summary of his, of his leadership wasn't repentance. It wasn't he completely went the opposite direction of his dad. No, it says, in, he describes it, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam. And I have to just say, there are some listening to me right now that are following in these footsteps, and you are persisting in those sins that are in your life. You're, the, the idea behind persisting isn't that you're, you know, they're always coming up and they're ever, they're, they're occasionally there. No, you're willingly, purposefully choosing to hang on to that sinful behavior, even though all around them you've justified, made excuses you know, when you compare to so-and-so, yeah, you don't look that bad. But when you compare, you and I compare to the high calling of Jesus Christ, we all fall short. It really depends on which way you want to look. And the Lord is just calling you to stop persisting in that sin. Lay it aside. Even though you improve a little bit, go all the way. Jump in. Notice verse 4. Now, Misha, the king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, And he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. And it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. After the death of Ahab, this king in Moab seizes an opportunity to say, I am now no longer giving my best sheep and wool to the king of Israel. And he rebels. He no longer wants to pay tribute uh, what was called tribute back then, the word that we use today is the word taxes. And you could tell how, you can know how he would feel if you got the opportunity to go, you know what, uh, there's a change in the IRS and I refuse to pay taxes. Now, of course, if you make that choice, you take things into your own hands. Uh, they still have a, a place that they place people like that in. It's called prison. And so the government doesn't take kindly to that. It not he, not now and not then. And he was tired of heavy, having this heavy burden of taxes between him and Moab. Now, I want to pause here for a moment because from this little text, with a little bit of research, this is a powerful. There's powerful insight from this text here as it relates to the reliability of the Bible one of the things that is undermined and attacked and criticized the most is the Bible. And when the Bible is criticized, you may wonder, well, how do I explain that? How do I answer such a question? You know, one of the greatest evidences of the truthfulness of the Bible that you hold, the translation of the Bible that you hold in your hands, that is a true and accurate translation of the original autographs, one of the greatest evidences of its truthfulness is the enormous amount of evidence found in archaeology. In archaeology. Now, actually there are four keys. If you want to jot them down, I'll give them to you. And then I'll give you the number you can look up on our website to find the Bible study that we did in depth on this. But for the sake of our time tonight, there are four things. And the way that you can remember the four pieces of evidence that help solidify the truthfulness of the Bible is this: just in the back of your Bible, almost all of our Bibles have maps. If you remember that word, you can remember the four things. The M stands for manuscript evidence. The A stands for archeological evidence. The P stands for predictive prophecy. And the S stands for the statistical probability of all of those things working together. So manuscript evidence, archeological evidence, predictive prophecy, and statistical probability Now, if you go to our website, calvaryaurora.org, and you type in the number 14357 into the search bar, it will take you right to the Bible study where we looked at all of this in depth, all four points. Uh, I think it was a Bible study I entitled, You Can Trust Your Bible. So the, the number for that is 14357. It's a study in John chapter 13. But suffice it for us tonight, the archaeological evidence is very important. The Bible is a book that's rooted in fact. It's rooted in history. It names names, times, lands, leaders, and a whole host of concrete, time-stamped, verifiable facts. Because of that... Over and over again, men and women have set out to disprove the Bible by using it as a tool for expeditions to prove what's in it. It's like if they turn over and say, well, wait a minute, what about Moab? Where's proof for Moab? And where's proof for the king of Israel? And yet with every spade that's turned, with every dig that's done in the name of disproving the Bible, they come away with proof. Another confirmation of the Bible's truthfulness and accuracy. And it's really a wrong thing to say archaeology proves the Bible. It's more accurate to say the Bible proves archaeology and have it in the right order. Now, there were things that are found that if you go with us and the time that we spend in the Israeli museum, it's fascinating the stuff that they found and have put on display. And we've seen the same thing at the British Museum. And we've also seen the same thing at the museum in Athens, in Athens, Greece. Where all of these things that they found, horned altars, Canaanite idols, inscriptions that say the house of David are just some of the Old Testament finds. When we go on our tour, we go to the synagogue that was found in the literal town of Capernaum, the city of Bethany, where the Pilate Stone has its name on it. There's a facsimile right on the water and the real one's in the museum. And, And they just opened a brand new dig right on the Sea of Galilee that we tour now, and they found the ancient city of Magdala right there on the water, right where the Bible says it was. It was Sir Robert Ramsay that set out to disprove the Bible and his finds as he went out searching for these things from the scripture were used by God to give him a new life. He was born again by his attempt to disprove the Bible powerful, the archeological evidence. And it makes sense that if you go out and look for the places that the Bible mentions, that if it's a real document rooted in history, written by God, that you'd find the places that says that they're in there. And you'd find them in the places where they would be. And if a, uh, an enemy country was named, then there would be evidence for that country. Now, some might listen to this and go, well, wait a minute, Ed, they still haven't found such and such. Just keep looking, just keep looking. Don't ignore, you know, millions of pieces of evidence because you found one they haven't found yet. Why don't you dedicate your life to go find it and then report back to us as you're also examining all of the evidence that has already been found. And it makes sense that we would find people, that we would find places, we would find objects that conform to the biblical narrative and we have. Now, why is that important here? Simply because... This rebellion that's mentioned in Second Kings chapter 3 is mentioned in something called the Moabite stone. The Moabite stone. It's the largest inscription that we possess currently from the earliest parts of the monarchies of both Israel and Judah. And as one commentator wrote, and I quote, it demonstrates that the people of Moab also spoke Hebrew, although they worshiped Chemosh and not Yahweh as their great God. It describes, this Moabite stone describes how Misha threw off 40 years of rule by Israel, inaugurated by King Omri, by fortifying the northern border towns. It makes no mention of the awful measures, the end of the chapter mentions, by which a final Israelite withdrawal was effected. But it's possible that Misha's triumphal celebratory inscribed stone was set up after his success in the north, but before the rigors of the southern campaign. Yet we may want to pause again before reading 2 Kings 3 as a simple historical record. And over and over again, archaeology proves the scriptures. And if you're writing notes down just there in verses 4 and 5, you can just write a little note, Moabite stone. Historical verification. Pick up now in verse 6 with me. So King Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. Israel. Then he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are. My people as your people. My horses as your horses. And he said, Which way shall we go up? And he answered, By the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they marched on the roundabout route seven days. And there was no water for the army nor for the animals that followed them. Verse 10. And the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. So King Jehoshaphat was a good man, but a man who could easily get himself into situations that he shouldn't have. Because this is almost the same language that King Ahab used to get him to dress up like him in the previous battle against the Syrians. We call call someone like a little bit naive or gullible that doesn't quite see what's happening, but rather rushes in and just has that genuine spirit about him wanting to help. While Jehoram is panicking, Jehoshaphat wants to hear from the Lord, which is always good in a midst of a time of anxiety or panic that whether it's you or someone close to you that just says, let's just seek the Lord. Let's just pray and lay this before the Lord. It reminded me, you can jot it down in Philippians chapter four, verse six. I'll read it to you from the New Living. It says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all that he's done. If you do this, you'll experience God's peace, which is far more wonderful than the human mind can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Those of you that memorize this probably know it more as be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request be made known to God. That's similar happening here, where he's requesting, hey, we need to hear from the Lord here. Is there anybody just calm down. Is there anybody that speaks for God? And they say, well, Elisha. And I like how Elisha's described. He's described as the one that poured, in verse 11, the one that poured water on the hands of Elijah. And really, that's a symbolism, as we'll see later. It's a symbolism of servanthood. He's just known as Elijah's servant. Even though now he is a prophet of God in his own right, he was a servant and one that's known as someone that served. I love that. A similar thing is said of Joshua when it, relates to his, uh, when it comes to his relationship with Moses that he's described as Joshua as Moses' assistant. Just someone that was serving and faithful and available and teachable and spiritual. All the qualities of servanthood here. So they send for Elisha. Jehoshaphat says the word of the Lord is with him, verse 13. Then Elisha said to the king of Israel... "'What have I to do with you? "'Go to the prophets of your father "'and the prophets of your mother.' "'And the king of Israel said to him, "'No, for the Lord has called these three kings together "'to deliver them into the hand of Moab.' "'And Elisha said, "'As the Lord of hosts live before whom I stand, "'surely were it not that I regard "'the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, "'I would not look at you nor see you. "'But now bring me a musician.' And it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. Have you ever felt that in worship? Have you ever felt the hand of the Lord come upon you as you were singing? And like in no other way. And it doesn't even have to be in the company of believers. I could could think of those times where just in, in that time of devotional, just me where the house is quiet, I quietly sing a song that God inspires from memory, and I begin to sing over my devos, and I just sense the hand of the Lord coming upon me. That presence of the Lord. Like he has a special word or a special direction or a special comfort or a special encouragement. And, and here is Elisha. He looks at Jehoram and goes, you know what? I don't have anything to do with you. You don't even, you, you don't worship the one true God. Why don't you just call upon, you know, it's like Elijah when he was up on Mount Carmel. Go ahead and call on your own gods. And yet because of Jehoshaphat, I'm going to call upon the Lord. That's encouraging. I mean, there's so much in this text, so much in this chapter I mean, here's the decision that, that you make. You know, what, all the time you, you go through the study in the Old Testament, you go, what's the relevance? What's the relevance? Man, it's everywhere. So let me ask you a question. Who do you want to be, Jehoram or Jehoshaphat? In this particular situation, who do you want to be? I mean, even with Jehoshaphat's faults and even with his failures, God redeems it, puts him in the place of Jehoram so that Elisha will speak the word of the Lord to him, that, that, that he has favor with the prophet. I mean, I I can answer it for you. I I don't want to be Jehoram. I don't want to be going after false gods so that one of the prophets of God go, you know, I don't want anything to do. Go after your own false gods. Instead, he's like, man, because of Jehoshaphat's here, I regard, it says verse 14, the presence of Jehoshaphat. And if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't even look at you. (laughs) That's some pretty strong words. Because Elijah, Elisha is not like Elijah, Elijah was a rough guy. He, he was a, a man that was an outdoorsy kind of, you know, Elisha's not like that, but he, he's able to speak. See, see, it doesn't matter what kind of personality you might have, strong, weak, you know, passive or aggressive or, you know, the, the types of, you know, maybe you've taken personality tests. I'm A type, B type, Z type, whatever, or whatever types they are. It doesn't matter. With the hand of the Lord upon you, you know, with, with you who you are, God will use you who you are and give you what you lack so that he gets all the glory. Because, you know, if you're a stronger personality, for you to confront someone, you can take the credit for that. That's kind of how you are. And yet, if you're a weaker personality and you say something strong with someone, and then you go home and go, man, what was that all about? What was that all about? You know, what happened there? And you go, man, that was the Lord. He overcame my weaknesses. He overcame, which is what he wants to do constantly. One of the greatest sins that's in this room right now, that is standing at this pulpit right now, is the reliance upon our own wisdom and our own strength and stopping at that. Let alone relying on our own understanding to the neglect of seeking God. That's even a greater sin. But think of the things that God wants us to be walking into that are beyond us, that are far from us, that are over our abilities, that are completely more than we can think or ask. He promises. And what do we do? We settle for what we can do. And we settle for what we can figure out. And we settle for our own little ideas and our own little programs. And we settle when God is wanting to stretch us. What is the number one way that he stretches us to get beyond our humanity, to get beyond the leaning on our own understanding? Leading us to steps of faith. Because when you take this dramatic step of faith, you put yourself in a position where you have no choice but to trust in the Lord. And you're so fearful and you're so concerned. And it's in that step of faith where you you begin to doubt your own abilities. You begin to doubt that it's even from the Lord. You begin to wonder. You even will talk yourself out of a step of faith if you wait too long. You say, Well, hey, what's going on? Why haven't you taken that step of faith? Well, you know, I'm seeing the Lord. I'm seeing the Lord. I'm seeing the Lord. Man, it's been 20 years, bro. I think it's time to step out. Let's do something for the Lord. Well, you know, we're just going gonna to wait for this to happen. We're going to wait for that to happen. We're going to wait for this to happen. And before you know it, you've waited your whole life. Because there's always something else to wait for. Take that step of faith. Trust the Lord. So here he is. Bring me a musician. The hand of the Lord was upon him. You know, music is often tied to the anointing of God. Music is often tied to the presence of God. He says it himself that he inhabits what? The praises of his people. That the presence of God and music go hand in hand. That's one of the many, many reasons why we reserve time to sing together. To sing songs that glorify God, that extol his virtues, that praise him that worship Him, that call for the raising of the hands and the bowing of the knees, that call for repentance, you know, that that call for us to be reminded that in this upside-down crazy world that there is a God who's reliable and trustworthy, who's coming again to establish His kingdom and rule and reign for all of eternity with those that have faith in Him. Well, It says in verse 16, he said, Thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. And thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind. This is verse 17. Nor shall you see rain, yet the valley shall be filled with water so that your cattle and your animals may drink. And this is but a trivial thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. Also, you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall cut down every good tree, and stop up every spring of water, and ruin every good piece of land with stones. There is a great testimony here that there, you know, there's just, there, sometimes for some people, for some people, that there is a trial hard enough and a storm difficult enough. There, there seems to be not a trial hard enough or a storm difficult enough that will turn a hard heart back to the Lord. You know, you that are praying for your kids, your backslidden kids that have been backslidden for a long time, and, and even though you've been afraid to pray this, you've been getting to pray, God, whatever it takes, because then you watch things coming into their life, and it still doesn't turn them. And you watch another thing come into their life, and it still doesn't turn them. And, 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 you know, here in the, what's being laid out here in this battle, all the arid wasteland, he says, there, there hasn't been anything to drink for them. He go ahead and draw, you know, carve out and dig out these big ditches. Get to work. This is the word of the Lord. Dig the ditches because it's in the ditches I'm going to provide the water. And there is God's part and there's man's part. And as one pastor pointed out to us, uh, he said that, that Jehoshaphat was in the wrong place but had the right heart and God honored that in his life and began to speak, dig these ditches, dig these ditches. It's just verse 18, as big as the thing is before you, when God acts, it's just a trivial thing and to show that it's a trivial thing, he's gonna even do greater things than what you ask for. Paul picks up, I've already mentioned it, but Paul picks that up when he writes to the Ephesians that God is, is going to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that you think or ask. All of it. As much as your imagination could even ask, God's ready to do beyond that. To, to, to bring him the most glory through your life. Well, in verse 20, it happened in the morning when the grain offering was offered and suddenly water came by the way of Edom. So suddenly water came by the way of Eden, and the land, what does your Bible say, was filled All right, I guess one person has their Bible open. The land was filled with water. Mark that. The ditches, the land filled with water. And when the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to bear arms and older were gathered. They stood at the border. They rose up early in the morning and the sun was shining on the water and the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. A miraculous... Work of God on top of a miraculous work of God. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely struck swords and have killed one another. Now therefore, Moab, to the spoil. And when they came to the camp of Israel, Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites so that they fled from before them and they entered their land, killing the Moabites." Then they destroyed the cities. Each man threw a stone on every good piece of land and filled it. They stopped up all the springs of water, cut down all the good trees, except that they left intact the stones of Kir Hareseth. However, the slingers surrounded and attacked it. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too intense for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not. And he took his eldest son, who would have reigned in his place and offered him as a burn offering upon the wall. And there was a great indignation against Israel. So they departed from him and returned to their own land. It's sad what false worship will do. You'll destroy your own kids with false worship. I mean, this is a pretty dramatic way to do that, to sacrifice your kids unto the false gods of the day. But Lest we think that's just a primitive discussion and just a primitive description of something that's been thousands of years today, there are, are children being sacrificed to the altar of pleasure every day of the year in this country and around the world through abortion. Legally celebrated, funded by our own government. I mean, idol worship is still with us today. The devastating effects of sinful pleasures and sinful rebellion, idolatry will lead us all to do really bad things. You see, after the ditches were dug, God provided the water. Not one minute earlier and not one minute too late. He provided it just on time. The Moabites, it says, wake up, and it looks like blood to their eyes, so they thought there was a battle overnight, and they needed, all they needed to go was just clean it up and take care of business, and they won, but it wasn't as it seemed. That is a theme throughout the Bible, that things aren't always as they appear, that just what our eyes can see are not the proof. That's why the Bible says that we don't walk by sight, but by faith, And the Moabites were defeated in their own cities by the power and the strength and the wisdom of God. Why? Because it wasn't as it appeared. Now, I have to say, guys, it's easy to come to wrong conclusions in our lives. As someone once said, one of the things that Christians are quickest to do, and they they do it the best, is to jump to wrong conclusions. And how quickly we do that. Not everything is as it seems or as it appears Or is it as as it is written on some social media place or some blog? Why is it that we are so ingrained to think the worst at one little statement, especially of the body of Christ, where we have wisdom, we have the God of all knowledge, the God of truth, who can verify and give us discernment and direction. He he can confirm to us. And, and, And even in that, there's the question of, is it any of our business anyway? how this world wants to destroy the reputations of men and women throughout the body of Christ. You know, in the day, I, I look back to some of the old messages that, that would reflect on, on some of the old notes and things or just my recollection. I remember taking such a strong stand in years previous. I would say something like, don't believe everything that you get in that forwarded email. <laughs> you remember the days of forwarded emails? I mean, you got all kinds of nonsense in there. It was just the weirdest, craziest things. And then from forwarded emails, we used to say, I used to teach, hey, don't believe everything you read on that blog. It's probably some guy in his grandma's basement that is using his grandma's internet and just typing lies and doesn't have a life himself. And so watch out. And now what is it? Social media. And it makes you wonder, you know, you think social media is going to be the end. What's next? What's gonna be used next to spread falsehood and lies instantly, around the world, instantly? People pick up on things, they call it what? Viral. And you just forward something on and you just click this and you never really verify and it kind of looks real and and you just kind of, and then then what happens? Then, Then we get caught up in being a part of the lie. For what purpose? What purpose did it serve? How did it fulfill this? So, so think of this. Maybe you print it out, put it on your computer, or put it on the inside of your glasses so you can see it all the time. But, but consider this. Turn over to Ephesians with me and consider this verse in light of our emailing, in light of our texting, in light of our blogging or internet searches or even what we post on social media as the Bible says very clearly... And I need to find it, so stick with me. Uh, that's not it. It is, that's not it. So he says a lot of let's. Let all bitterness be put away. It's not that one. And then, okay, it's verse 29. So you can see from verse 28, let. Verse 29, let. Verse 31, let. Verse 6 of chapter 5. So chapter 4, verse 29, all these series of commands. And, and he uses the word let. But here's the command... That will help us when it comes to what we forward, what we send, what we retweet, what we repost. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification. That's a fancy Bible word for building someone up, encouraging them, strengthening their life, that it might impart what? Grace to the hearers grace to the hearers. What's happening is, there's a couple things happening here. Remember, the theme is not everything is as it appears. A couple things happen. One, we live in a culture that that some of us have bought into, some of you have bought into, where you think your opinion is the most important thing out there. And that somehow the world won't keep spinning unless you share your opinion. You know, you just got to get it out there. And what happens? You get a real emotional response to something you don 't like something that's happened in the government you don 't like something that happened in the city you don 't like something that happened at work you don 't like something and, and you feel injustice, you feel whatever it might be and then, and then before praying about it, before even laying it before the Lord you just. I'm not done yet, put on a whole album and just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let everyone know, I, no one asked for your opinion, but you wanna let everyone know about what your opinion is and you don't remember that you're an ambassador of Jesus Christ. You're an, I'm an ambassador of Jesus Christ. What I write, what I say, as I'm walking in the spirit, I've certainly made this mistake myself, so I'm not preaching at you. I'm listening from the Holy Spirit speaking to us tonight so that we might use our time and our talents and our treasure and our social media for the glory of God and not lose our credibility. You know, you spend all this time building up credibility with people and you lose it in one keystroke, one little return, and now people don't trust you anymore because you stabbed them and you cut them and you... You might have made this point and you made this point over here so you made a lot of people happy because they share that opinion and then you, on this side you hurt people and you crush them with your opinion and, and you didn't really mean to. It wasn't like you were really set out to hurt people. You just wanted your opinion shared. You just want to this, just kind of jump in on it all and, and I've learned over the years. I'm not perfect at it for sure in any way whatsoever but I'm learning I should say that my opinion isn't really as important as the word of God. It's not important, and unless somebody asks for my opinion, I'm not really going to share it. If you want it, ask me, but otherwise, just seek the Lord. So that's one thing that's happening here, you know, so be careful. But secondly, I think that this, is, this phrase, not everything is as it appears, also reminds us when we come to wrong conclusions, when we listen to gossip. When we receive gossip, we will come to the wrong conclusion, Listen to what the Bible says, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's not just like going to court and lying about him. It's a lying about him everywhere. Don't lie about your neighbor. Don't spread stuff about him. It's a much broader thing than just picturing yourself in court. Well, you know, I've never bear false witness because I've never been in court. No, it's more than that. The principle is so much bigger. Don't lie about people. Don't lie about people. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 19. A gossip, this is from the New Living, a gossip tells secrets, so don't hang around with someone who talks too much. Proverbs 18, 8, New, New Living. What dainty morsels rumors are, but they sink deep into one's heart. That's one of the many dangers with the sin of gossip. You're only getting one side of the story, and often it's a very slanted side to the story. And on top of that, you're listening to the gossip. So now you're sinning upon sin, and then if you come to the wrong conclusion, strike three, you're out. Nothing good's gonna come from gossip. Nothing good's gonna come from a a lying story, a trivial tale it looks like blood it looks like blood look what do you see blood what do you see blood it was water it was water not everything that we see is accurate and there you come Uh, and i think the greatest error when it comes to these things is then ascribing your opinion to god god told me to say this really because if God told you to say this, then I think God would also tell me what you're about to share with me so that there's a bearing of witness together. Well, you know, God told me to tell you that. Okay, you know, I'll pray about it and I'll seek the Lord, but you know, this, is, this doesn't bear witness with the scriptures. It doesn't bear witness with my heart. Uh, it, it, I mean, I, I'm going to seek the Lord and I believe he can speak to me as much as he can speak to you. And man, it, does, it wasn't blood. It's only water. And the water that the Lord provides, the truth of the matter, the truth of the gossip you've believed, the conclusions you've come to, maybe the gossip you've spread, maybe the brother that you slandered, maybe the sister that you have lied about and destroyed their character, it's not blood, it's water. And soon the water of the Lord will spell your demise and bring you to a place of brokenness by your own selfish decisions to a place yet of repentance and asking the Lord for forgiveness for slandering a brother, destroying their reputation. Psalm 105, excuse me, Psalm 101 verse 5 says, whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I'll destroy. And the one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. And what we find at the end of the chapter here is that victory comes to the ones relying upon the Lord, comes to the ones that seek out God. Who's a prophet? We need to hear. Jehoshaphat says, we've got to hear from God. We can't go forward without hearing from God. And then at the end of the chapter, you see the Moabites seek to attack the Edomites. And what does the king do? He sacrifices his own son looking for victory. Israel departs and the battle was over. One last thing I want to leave with today, and that's back in verse 15. Would you go there with me? Chapter 3, verse 15. Let's look back at this instruction to dig ditches. I want to touch on it briefly because I believe the Holy Spirit has a word for us on this topic. He says in verse 15, Bring me a musician. And it happened when the musicians played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, Make this valley full of ditches. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water, so that your cattle and your animals may drink this is but a trivial thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. And you're going to attack every fortified city, every choice city, shall cut down every good tree and stop up every spring of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. You know, this instruction to dig ditches reminds me of the blessed privilege that God gives us to cooperate with him in what he's doing on the earth. To cooperate with him cooperate is a softer word that's easier to accept <clears throat> but when i mean when i share cooperation i really am referring to our opportunity to obey god obedience obedience and cooperation they're really synonyms what a privilege god has given us to obey him <clears throat> we're in a relationship with the living god that is not filled with religious duties It's not a list of things that you must follow in order to be right with God. Elisha tells them, God wants you to dig ditches in this arid desert land. Dig ditches for the sake of the coming of water from the Lord. A miraculous work of God. Only God could give the water, but they had to dig the ditches. Now certainly God could have dug the ditches, but he chose for them to cooperate. You dig the ditches, I provide the water. You dig the ditches. I like what Paul writes to the Philippians. He says, for it's God who works in you. This is Philippians 2.13. It's God that works in you, what? Both to will, the desire to do something for God, and to do, the power to accomplish it. That, That really, anything that we do for God, it's God working in us. It's God working in us and our yielding now, you can jot this down in Exodus chapter 25, in verse 10 or so, uh, God gives instruction to the children of Israel to build the Ark of the Covenant. And, and I'll read it to you. If you want to flip over there, you can, but I'll read it to you. There's, there's quite a bit of instruction of what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. Very precise, very specific in Exodus chapter 20, uh, um, 25, I should say. Very specific. And he says, you know, after telling him you make a mercy seat, make two cherubim, make one cherubim. And finally he gets in verse 21, he says, you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I give you. And there I'll meet with you, and I'll speak with you from above the mercy seat and between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, of all the things which I give you in the commandment to the children of Israel. Now, the way you read Exodus 25 is really dependent upon how you view God. God. Because if you view God as just a taskmaster that tells you what to do all the time and that you need to obey him in every single area in order to prove yourself, in order to have a sense of security with him, to have value for him, you know, the idea of, I'm going to work really hard for you, God, because I love you, and and that's the only way that I'll have the sense that I'm right with you, then you're going to emphasize the first part of that section. Take this, do this, get this, make this, fashion this, put this, put it all together, but if you approach God from the way that he approached you, if we approach God from the way that he condescended and came to our level from a perspective of grace, then the last two verses will blow your mind. Yeah, yeah you have your part. Go get the wood, this kind of wood. Cut it this size. Yeah, these measurements. Make sure you fashion the angels to look this way. Make sure that the lid goes on top of the box and you put the little round holes on there and you put the post through there. Make sure you do it exactly as I tell you, but for this purpose. Because notice he says, you're going to put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony, what? That I will give you. And there I will meet you. And I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. And I will give you in the commandment at the end, verse 27, to the children of Israel. A grace-based perspective of understanding the love and the mercy of God doesn't emphasize what we do for God. It emphasizes what God does for us, what he's done, how gracious and how good he's been. I was reading recently of, uh, in an article of three tests that you can share with someone that would really help them determine if they're a real believer or not one of the tests is ask them to explain the mercy of God. The mercy of God. And I believe that the author in his article was really leading us down a path of not having some theological seminary-based answer. But if you've experienced the mercy of God, then you can describe it. The mercy of God. What is the mercy of God? But man, not receiving what we deserve. Remembering where we came from remembering the life we had apart from Christ, the damage that we did, the loneliness that we felt, the heap of unconfessed sin that we lopped on ourselves. You, You can't help but begin to embrace the mercy of God. God, without you, where would I be today? Without you, I know where I'd be. I know what the end game was. I know what it led me, but you interrupted my life. You sent Jesus Christ to die for me when I was still a sinner, when I was in my worst condition. The mercy of God. And when someone understands the mercy of God, then it doesn't take much to understand the grace of God. You see, if the mercy of God is not receiving what we deserve, and and there is a big amen in the room for that because you haven't received what you deserved. You haven't received by faith in Jesus Christ what you deserve, which will remind you every time you start to assert your rights, give me what I deserve. Don't ask for that. Jesus took that upon himself. He took the wrath of God upon himself as the full price for the penalty of all of humanity's sins. But more important, he paid the price for all of my sin and yours. And to understand mercy in its most simplest form, it doesn't take much to understand grace. You see, if mercy is not receiving what we deserve, then what is grace but getting what we don't deserve? Just that. Yeah, go ahead and put this together, put this together. Dig the ditches. Dig the ditches. What are we digging the ditches for? It hasn't rained here in years. I don't want to dig ditches. It's dumb. It's fruitless. I'm not digging any ditches. Great. Then you're not going to participate and enjoy the miracle because water's coming. God is going to provide the water. Make a way. Prepare a way. Why do you share the gospel with people? You're digging ditches. You're digging ditches in their life. Now, of course, the Bible describes that as planting seeds. But even those that plant seeds know that you dig a little hole out to put the seed down with your finger, you know? And you're preparing the way. Why? Because water's coming. You go, come on now, water's coming. Aren't you stretching that illustration a little bit? (laughs) The Bible says one person plants and another waters. But it's God that gives the increase. There's God's part and there's our part. And there are those times and those dry times in our lives, those times when it just seems arid and it's just a wasteland, that you're going to hear the Lord say, dig the ditches. And your response might be, no, I'm not digging no ditches. Then you ain't getting no water. Dig the ditches. Step into what God, you're not working for your salvation. That's not grace. What could you and I possibly do to earn and deserve the salvation of God? The Bible says you wouldn't even come to God unless he drew you to himself. You wouldn't even know about Jesus unless he gave you that revelation. You wouldn't even understand the conviction of sin unless God lets you feel the conviction of sin and reveal to you just how bad that situation is. Just how embarrassing. Every time I share my testimony, I was just sharing a little bit of it today with Frank. So we were going out for lunch and talking about radio and talking about life, and we're just talking about some of the stupid things we did, and just describing it. It's just, it's embarrassing and shameful to think that that's how I choose to live my life, embarrassing and shameful to myself, to my family, but more importantly, to God. It wasn't how I was designed to live. We were talking mostly about partying and alcohol and all the things that we did to escape reality and think we were cool when all the while we were destroying ourselves and everyone that we loved and society and every time i hear of these things i it's shameful and those are the very things we used to do and joke about it where god would send me messengers and warn me of hell literally warn me of hell the hell to come Warn me of being separated from God. Warn me of of living eternally. and, And I would respond. This would be my response. I don't care about hell. We'll just take the party there. If they have ever said that, and you might be saying it right now, there is no party in hell. It is anguish and regret and... and so much more to live apart from God. You think it's anguish and regret right now. is a million times worse. Described as utter darkness, where there's gnashing of teeth. Jesus said something that was really weird describing hell. He described hell as where the worm doesn't die. That's just weird. A worm that never dies. Whatever that is in hell, it's gonna be weird and bad. You see, when we dig the ditches, we cooperate with God. We're not earning our salvation. Christianity is not based on what man can do. Christianity is a relationship. All I can do is stumble around in the darkness. The gospel isn't based upon our working hard or reading a lot or singing loud. It's just the opposite. We come to God because of what he has done, not because of what we have done. How can I come to God? It's not because, I can't come to God because I've kept his commandments. I haven't kept his commandments. I can't come to God because I have a perfect pedigree or my family is a generations and generations of believers or any of the things I might be able to present to him. I come to God as a beggar, asking him, I accept what you offer, what you have done, not my works, but your finished work. And when he comes to this ark here, yeah, put it all together. Set it up. Build it right. Put the mercy seat. You know, what the significance of the ark of the covenant that's described in Exodus 25 is that that ark with the mercy seat, well, that mercy seat was a picture and a type of the coming permanent mercy seat. His name would be Jesus Christ, where the blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, with the mercy seat that was to come, he would shed his blood once and for all for everyone that placed their faith in him. I'm so glad that those that were commanded to build the Ark, they built it right. And they did what God because they prepared the way for us that we might learn from their obedience. I'm so glad these, these guys, you know, of all the people we're going to meet in heaven, there's going to be a few surprises. And these guys that dug the ditches They're going to be there. God's faithfulness. Faithfulness by the old covenant. Trusting in Messiah to come. What is it for us? Faithfulness in the new covenant. We trust in the Savior that has come. And we place our entire life and the weight of our life unto Jesus Christ and we trust him with our life. Psalm 40 verse 8 says, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. And so for what Jesus has done for me, we stand in him by his righteousness, his goodness, his perfect, his perfect life for my imperfect life. And the Bible says, if he is for me, who can be against me? And so dig those ditches, church. Step into what God's told you to do and do it. And watch his provision. Watch him come through and see the faithfulness of God. So Father, we know that this, this truth is just a beautiful truth that could be developed in a much deeper way, but just to, to be reminded briefly on, the, on your wonderful grace and your mercy tonight, superseding the judgment that we all deserve, thank you for sending your son Jesus Christ to die for our sins, to rise again the third day in the power of your resurrection that might be handed down to us that we might believe and live our life by faith in the one true God who loves us. And I pray, God, as people are here processing this, digging the ditches, Lord, and just knowing that there, is, there are things to be done to delight to do, to do your will. And for those that lack it tonight, would you put in their hearts and would you put in our hearts a delight to do your will? And just fill us with the delightfulness of obeying and cooperating with you. Even if it means digging ditches, nothing glamorous about that. Nevertheless, it was used in your perfect will to provide the channels for your blessing to confound those that thought it was blood, but it was just really your provision. Father, I pray for those listening in today that have never given their lives to you that today would be the day they surrender their life to you, that today would be the day they give themselves over by faith, trusting in you, confessing their sins, and asking you to forgive them for all of what they've done and all of their sins, Lord. And so I pray, God, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit among us tonight and that you would draw people to yourself and you would bring conviction of sin and that they would respond by surrendering their life and accepting your free gift. Whoever confesses with their mouth the Lord Jesus and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved, shall be saved. And so, Lord, we know that you have a, a, a divine appointment with many listening today. If you're here today, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, wherever you might be, you'd say, Ed, I need to follow God with my life. Then I, I want to invite you to do just that. Would would you would you stand to your feet that today would be the day that you give your life to Jesus Christ, that that you would make a public a public response to a public call, that today I'm going to repent of my sins, and I'm going to put my full weight. You just bring your questions to him. Bring your concerns. You don't have to have everything answered before you repent of your sins. You don't have to know every page of the Bible. You don't have to have every question answered. You just need to believe in what Jesus has revealed to you, that he loves you, sacrificed his life for you. The greatest need in your life was the forgiveness of your sins, and the greatest deed of God was to provide it for you. Anyone here? You might be on the radio or downstairs, you know, on the Internet. Of course, we don't see you, but that's okay. It doesn't have to be us that see you. God sees you. He loves you, cares for you. And just somebody watching on their computer right now that the Holy Spirit is just ministering to your heart, you know that this is the time, this is the day. And so just pray and ask God. Say, God, I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. I believe you sent Jesus Christ to live for me. I believe he died for me. And I believe he rose again from the dead to forgive me of my sins. God, help me to turn away from my sinful past and to follow you all the days of my life. I lay it all down before you, God. And I surrender my life from this day forward. And Father, I pray for those that might turn to you those my, It was a Wednesday night that my life was transformed. And today, it could be that Wednesday night. It could be on the radio somewhere around the country. It could be just somebody flipping through SoundCloud, and you minister to their hearts the true word of your love for them and grace and mercy, not what we have done for you, but what you have done for us. So for us that love you and care for you, Lord, we leave here just with a sense of joy and adoration a few weeks from celebrating your birth, but we're already celebrating for the great things you've done in our lives. May you be glorified and exalted in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223